let's go to the Dude Maker Hotline and say hello to, amongst the uh, other books he has authored, one of our old-time classic favorites, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. One of my other favorites, James Madison and the Making of America. The one and only doctor, or as I call him, Herr Doctor, uh, Professor Dr. Kevin Gutzman. Uh, Kevin, great to have you this morning. How are you? I'm well, Mike. How are you? I am well. How have you been? We haven't talked in a couple of years. Uh, well, things are okay, I think. My, uh, <laughs> my book, The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, came out at the end of 2022 and has been widely positively reviewed and selling very well, so I'm very happy about that. That's the latest major development. Well, you know, my big question for you, my, my old friend, is, okay, do you have a book coming out this Valentine's Day? I fear I don't. <laughs> Those of you that don't know, it's an inside joke. Kevin's book, James Madison and the Making of America, came out on Valentine's Day. What was that, 2013, 2012? 2012. <laughs> Man, we're getting old, Mike. <laughs> we are. 2012. Getting... <laughs> we are Jeez. Getting... <laughs> hey, by some people's count, that's 12 years ago. We have listeners that aren't even 12. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, now, Kevin, you are a graduate of the University of Texas, are you not? I am. I have three degrees from the University of Texas. So what say you, if you have seen the headlines about what Governor Abbott has done and said and basically informed the regime leader that Texas is asserting its sovereignty and he's not asking permission, but he's just going to enforce and defend the uh, the border of Texas. And my, my, my primary question, if, you know, if you've read Abbott's letter, is he refers to the Constitution as a compact. It's been a long time since you and I have heard someone in government call the Constitution a compact, isn't it? Yes, it has been a very long time. How about that? Yeah. So what do you think? Well, I'm not surprised he decided to do something. I'm somewhat skeptical that what he's trying to do will work because it kind of depends on the federal government's uh, conceding that it has responsibility to prevent ingress of huge numbers of foreigners uh, who are crossing southern border and well i think essentially president biden wants these people to be entering across the southern border he invited them to enter across the southern border so hmm, it's a bad situation but i'm not too sure that uh governor abbott is going to be allowed by federal courts to do what he's doing now in his letter he says in the last paragraph uh that uh, the uh, he says the failure of the Biden administration to fulfill the duties imposed by Article Four, Subsection Four, has triggered Article One, Subsection Ten, Clause Three, which reverse, reserves to this state the right of self-defense. For these reasons, I have already right. declared an invasion under Article One, Subsection Ten, Clause Three, to invoke Texas's constitutional authority and to defend and protect itself. That now this is where I think is key here. He says that authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. To me, it sounds to me like he's telling Biden, don't bother going to court because I'm just going to ignore you. 
Is that how you hear that? Well, again, um, it's an interesting question how long he'd get away with that. <laughs> uh, because ultimately it comes down to federal authorities allowing him to do what he's saying he's going to do. And I think we have a right to be skeptical that they're going to allow that. So who knows what will happen. Well, let me ask you a, a, a historical <laughs> question then. If, you, if I said, Kevin, uh, can you tell me an incident in American history that is similar to this, what would, uh, what would you give me? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really don't know what to say. Um, because I don't think there's ever been a, an instance when the federal executive decided, you know, we just don't want to keep uh, we don't want to keep unknown foreigners from entering the country. So how that can work out, I don't know. When the framers were, uh, I, I'm fascinated by this, and I know you are. You wrote a book called "The Politically Inc Incorrect Guide to the Constitution." You uh, you wrote a follow up book with Tom Woods called "Who Killed." The Constitution. Uh, so you are uh, you are a very noted authority on this. Contained in Article One, Section Eight, at the end, near the, near the end, after the enumerated powers, if you will, there are all these mentions here, or all these uh, statements about militias, and then right. about insurrections and rebellions, and then when one can be determined. Doesn't it clearly state, or wasn't it the intent of the of the founders and the framers then, that if there was going to be a application, if you will, from we'll just use Texas in this instance. To the federalities that, hey, man, we're being invaded here. Isn't it the prerogative of the legislature or, or the executive of the state thereof to do that? Um, hmm. Again, it comes down to the question, what relationship there's going to be between the behavior of the federal government and, well... I think, of course, the people who made the Constitution didn't contemplate that the executive branch would decide, we just don't care who's entering the country. We're just going to allow anyone who wants to enter the country, and in fact, we're going to invite unknown foreigners to enter the country, right? So trying to divine someone's understanding of how the federal government would react in that kind of a situation or what the state governments would be entitled to do in that kind of a situation. I, I think it, it just assumes what isn't the case, which is that somebody thought this could happen, you know? Right, right. Um, I don't think anybody thought this could happen. <laughs> and yeah, it's not surprising that they wouldn't have thought this could happen, because who would, why would anyone want it to happen? You know? Oh, it's of course, a we know why we know why people want it to happen. But my point is, uh, it's it's the kind of a situation that just no one contemplated. So, uh, I, I'm afraid I. I, 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 I understand. Look, <laughs> there's a lot of us that are going like, well, it, 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 now, folks, if I may. Hair doctor, Dr. Kevin Goodsman. Now, now, your law degree is from the University of Virginia. Is that right? Or your, your master's? No, my law degree is from the University of Texas. My 
PhD and my MA in history from the University of Virginia. Okay, so Texas and UVA. Um, uh, this is right. a man that has written books about the Constitution, about Thomas Jefferson, about James Madison. Uh, he and I made a couple movies together. Um, uh, if anyone has studied this stuff, then it is Dr. Gutzman. The fact that you that you hear him going like, well, I don't know, because <laughs> I don't think anyone ever contemplated that this could happen. That in and of right. itself is a news story, if you ask me. Because doesn't that kind of put in context that, that we're, in untreaded, we're in uncharted waters here, aren't we? That's exactly where we are, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what, what could have led somebody to think this was a good idea is the question that we ought to be thinking about. What... You know, and of course, you and I know the answer is that today's Democrats think that if we have people entering the country illegally and that's allowed to continue, probably it will inure to the political benefit of the Democrats. That's what they think. So, yeah, that's what they think, and they probably have good reason to think that. So, um, man, it's... It's just <laughs> <laughs> to uh, quote the Princess Bride, to quote to quote the Sicilian, inconceivable. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, Professor Dr. Kevin Gutzman is on the uh, Dude Maker Hotline here with us. Uh, on a side note, you'll be uh, uh, on the one hand not pleased, and on the other hand, maybe a little bit pleased. Uh, Regnery Publishing that that published your book, several of your books, but published the in politically incorrect guide to the Constitution was gobbled up by this entity called the Skydance, Maggie? I think it's Skydance, which is a publishing, uh, one of these, uh, what do they call them, boutique publishing arms, of Steinman und Schuster. And I was informed by my sales rep, Monica, at Regnery, who we've been buying books from, you know, going back to two... Skyhorse. Going back to 2008, I've been stalking the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution, Tom Woods' Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. I was informed by Monica. She informed us yesterday. She goes, Mike, I don't know what to tell you, and I could just apologize profusely, but we got a list of books that Skyhorse is not going to publish anymore, and every book that you want is on the list. Right, Yeah. Well, so you know what I did? I went on to thrift bookstores and bought every copy available of the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. <laughs> so I have the world's largest supply on the way. <laughs> so, uh, and I know some of your other books are, were published from uh, the, the Flatiron Building people, Houghton, Mif Houghton Mifflin, right? Uh. Well, St. Martin's Press. St. Martin's Press, is, that's uh, it. Um, yeah, anyway. So um, the thing that, the, the way that this all affects me is that I no longer get, uh, I no longer get sales statements that tell me how many copies my books have sold, which is just kind of annoying. I, you know, one thing you want when you sell books is for the books, I mean, when you write books is for them to sell, but... Another thing you'd like is information about how the sales are going, and I no longer get that from um, St. Martin's. So, well, I mean, from uh, Regnery. So well, that's kind of annoying. Uh, absolutely. Well, maybe they'll sell the not, not an improvement. No, definitely not an improvement. File this under not an improvement. 
Um, let me ask a question of you that I uh, that I had uh, asked you previously, um, and that is, what is your view of POTUS 45, former President Donald Trump's claim that he has presidential immunity and some of the charges that have been filed against him by Merrick Barrett Garland and Joe Biden's henchman, Jack Smith. Um, does Trump have a case, do you think? Uh, well, I, my understanding of presidential, of executive immunity is it applies in the ordinary course of his performing the duties of his office. And I don't think that the controversial acts of President Trump have very much to do with the duties of his office. So uh, I don't think that's a very good claim. But, you know, um, when it comes to matters like that, everybody has an opinion, and <laughs> your, uh, your, your uh, results may vary, I guess is the way they put it. <laughs> so... <laughs> So anyway, as usual among lawyers, you don't get a straight answer, but I don't think there is a straight answer. That's my well, answer. Are you, uh, I'm sure you've read or you're familiar that uh, Trump's claim is that in protecting the um, in protecting a, a vote or a voter from being disenfranchised, that he was discharging one of the duties of his office. That's the claim. I, I read the brief. Uh, I forget yeah, which one I of his. That. Yeah, I forget which one of his lawyers. It wasn't Cipollino or, or Dershowitz that filed that, but one of those lawyers. That's what the claim was. That uh, that. So they acknowledge what you just said then in their filing, basically. Right. That doesn't well, mean that's going to hold water, though, does it? No, I think his uh, idea that uh, you're referring to the events of January sixth. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's going to fall under executive immunity because it, what he did, whether it was illegal or not, uh, was not an ordinary function of his office. There's been no other president who held a rally near the Capitol and encouraged people to go protest to their congressmen and so on on the day of the, the tallying of electoral college votes. So I don't think there's really an argument that that's. That was in the ordinary course of performance of his duties as president. Do you think there is? Um, could you have a? I, I don't know. I, I mean, can you have a rally? I mean, I mean, okay. So you can have a rally, but having a rally again, you can easily go four years as president without having a rally. So you could. What you have to show is that having a rally is in the ordinary course of his duties as president of the United States. I think it had nothing to do with his duties as president of the United States. Whatever you think about the legal aspect of it. Well, we're um, we are going to find out because I guess it's the th is it the third th court of appeals? There's a court that has the case. Yeah, I've heard that, but I don't know which one it is. Well, here let me let me ask you a, a, a different question. Let, let's delve into something that I think you do know a little bit about. Okay, so there is uh, some new supposed scholarship or work that's come out uh, that purports to show that Thomas Jefferson was the father of children from the slave that he owned named Sally Hemings. 
And right. uh, so on Twitter, I asked you, I'm like, hey, what do you what do you think about this latest claim? And your response, could you tell the audience uh, that there is a work that if they're interested in this subject, that uh, you ought to, I guess, reference or read uh, because the scholarship, there is some scholarship that has been done on the matter. Well, are you referring to Annette Gordon Reed's book, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings? Yes. Yeah, that's the one. That Basically, there had been talk of this since Jefferson's day. So in my book, Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, I reference John, a private writing by a uh, Another prominent Virginia politician in Jefferson's time, John Hartwell Cock, who was not a, a political opponent of Jefferson's. He actually was one of the other five people Jefferson chose to be on the first board of visitors at the University of Virginia. Cock said in uh, private correspondence in response to another planter's having offspring by one of his slaves and the fact that this, he said, was becoming more common, I think, you know, the bad example of Mr. Jefferson has helped pave the way to this development. Well, Cock didn't have any incentive to slander Jefferson, and he said this in private. It wasn't even known that he had said this in his lifetime. So, to me, that's that's pretty strong evidence that Something was going on, or at least people thought in Jefferson's time something was going on. People who knew him. Actually, Cock did, you know, visit Jefferson at Monticello and so on. So um, there had been talk of this possibility or likelihood since Jefferson's day. Uh, in my book, The Jeffersonians, I describe the way that it first came to public attention, a uh, uh, an unhappy office seeker at the beginning of the Jefferson administration named Callender um, didn't get the appointment as postmaster in Richmond that he had asked Secretary of State Madison for. And so he wrote in, in the newspapers that Jefferson was having some kind of sexual relationship with one of his slaves, whom he referred to as Sally. And uh, Jefferson didn't directly answer that. He did, however, at one point later on in his administration say that of the various slanders and negative allegations against him in the newspapers, only one of them was true, and that was, when young and single, I offered love to a married lady. And uh, this was um, a scandal in Virginia because this had been the wife of a friend of his, mm. and the Federalist Papers had been publicizing this. So in saying that, of course, he was denying, among other things, this rumor about this woman, Sally. Um, but people at the time, like Cock and, of course, people who were Sally Hemings's children, said that uh, Sally had told them that their, their uh, father was Thomas Jefferson. So this idea goes back all the way to Jefferson's day, and the white relatives of Thomas Jefferson said, well, no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't our father who was the father of Sally Hemings' children. It actually was one of the Carr brothers. They were cousins of Jefferson's children, um, daughter, uh, children of his, uh, his sister. And, but in, after Annette Gordon-Reed wrote, 
Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, there was DNA evidence that came out that proved it couldn't have been the Carr brothers. So they could not pinpoint which male Jefferson was the ancestor of uh, descendants of Sally Hemings, but it could rule out the Carr brothers. It could say that it was definitely a male Jefferson. Wow. So we've only ever had the idea from anyone that there was one male Jefferson who might have been involved. And since the white people that the white Jeffersons had pointed their finger at had been dispositively shown not to have been the ancestor of these black people who say they're descended from Sally Hemings, that seems to be pretty probative evidence, even if we didn't know about what Cock had said in private, that probably Thomas Jefferson was the father of children by Sally Hemings. Sure. <laughs> of course, I did not go into this thinking, I want to prove that Thomas Jefferson had children by Sally Hemings. Right. I was totally open to this, you know, whichever answer there might be. But it does seem to me that likely he fathered children by Sally Hemings. It's an amazing thing. And one last thing about, one last thing to notice about it is when he died, there were uh, half a dozen people in the room. Uh, his his uh, daughter, for example, his surviving daughter and one of them was Sally Hemings. Now, you might think, well, why would the white people on the, on the plantation have her in the room when he died? And, of course, there seems to be an obvious answer to that question. <laughs> well, if you want to see a film send-up of this, and I don't remember how uh, accurate, according to Gordon Reed and the story you, and the uh, facts that you just gave us, Nick Nolte was in a movie called Tom, uh, Jefferson in Paris. Did you ever see it? Yeah. Actually, when I was at the University of Virginia in grad school working on my Ph.D., my dissertation advisor was Peter Onuf, the prominent Jefferson scholar. And Nick Nolte came to UVA and met with Onuf to talk about how to play Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> and uh, let's just say that people generally were not thrilled by his depiction. Well, I wasn't thrilled by <laughs> My <laughs> <His> depiction. <laughs> color me, color He's me kind of guilty. <laughs> yeah, I liked him in 48 hours, but I didn't really think he was cut out to be Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I didn't think so either. All right, we're just about out of time. Uh, a final question for uh, for Dr. Kevin Goodsman, and we'll, we'll and then we will uh, be very uh, delighted to have you back here um, uh, uh, as the year that is the election year that is 2024. <laughs> gets underway because I, I, I fancied that there are going to be many other controversies <laughs> that uh, we may need a little guidance on the Constitution. I, I, I This will sound like a curveball, but it's really not. Nancy Pelosi, I went back and I watched the tapes. I watched the tapes of Pelosi's accusation of, uh, of Trump for his dereliction of duty and his abuse of office. And uh, in the phone call, the, fam the infamous phone call with Volodymyr Zelensky. So I wanted to see it, and I had forgotten that she had filed the impeachment charge, that she was going to let it go forward on non-Constitution Day, Constitution Day, as you call it, uh, <laughs> the, the non-holiday holiday, Constitution Day, September 17, 2019. But in going back and looking at, at, at what she said, you know, just a simple, just simple yes or, or no, maybe uh, you can't answer yes or no. The way that she described what Trump had done wrong in that call, to me, was completely nonsensical. Because all he did was ask 
a leader of a foreign nation whether or not a previous investigation had yielded any fruit. Did, did, did you hear, was that a legitimate impeachment inquiry in your mind? That's really my question to you. Well, back in the 1970s, the House Minority Leader, a Michigan Republican congressman named Gerald Ford, um, launched an impeachment effort against Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. And in the course of the speech in which he introduced his motion, um, Ford said, well, of course, it's up to the House to decide what an impeachable offense is. Now, it's true that there is case law, that is, there are decisions of uh, American legislatures and of the British Parliament going back into the medieval period about what an impeachable offense is, but more or less, um, the House can decide what treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors means, right? So we know what treason is. We know what bribery is. High crimes and misdemeanors, well, again, there's case law. Our system depends on the English precedence going back into the medieval period, but um, they don't exhaust the field. Right. Basically, whatever Congress thinks is a high crime and misdemeanor could be considered an impeachable offense, and if Congress decides in each house to uh, cast an adequate vote for it, then the the offender is removed from office. And, of course, there are always going to be new misdeeds that one hadn't thought of before. So, for example, oh, just off the top of my head, say the chief executive announced that whatever the law might say, he was going to allow any foreigner who might want to to walk across the southern border of the United States one might think, well, there's no precedent for that in England. There's no precedent for that in the United States. That certainly does look like uh, extreme dereliction of duty and absolute contramanding of federal statutes. Yeah, that looks like a high crime or misdemeanor. Wow. So this is the way the reasoning in this regard has to work. We're not going to have a precedent that's right on point for every impeachable offense or even... uh, for every case in which we might want to consider whether we're looking at an impeachable offense. But we can reason uh, like this. Do we have a statute that says this shouldn't happen? Is there something in the Constitution that says this shouldn't happen? Is it just logical that you can't have a legal system in which this kind of thing is going to be done by the executive? And um, if your conclusion is that that's an impeachable offense, or it, it should it should be understood as being one, and you're a member of the House of Representatives, then you should vote for impeachment, I think. But my, my view, and I wrote my first master's thesis at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT on the, the history of federal judicial impeachment, my feeling is there haven't been enough impeachments in American history. We've had far more people who just flagrantly abuse their office than we've ever made any motion toward impeaching needs to be done more often. Mostly federal judges have been very abusive of office from time to time and gotten away with it. Uh, Of course, I wrote a book about that. But we can reason uh, like this. Do we have a statute that says this shouldn't happen? Is there something in the Constitution that says this shouldn't happen? Is it just logical that you can't have a legal system in which this kind of thing is going to be done by the executive? And... um, if your conclusion is that 
that's an impeachable offense, or it, it should it should be understood as being one, and you're a member of the House of Representatives, then you should vote for impeachment. I think. But my my view, and I wrote my first master's thesis at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT on the, the history of federal judicial impeachment. My feeling is there haven't been enough impeachments in American history. We've had far more people who just flagrantly abuse their office than we've ever made any motion toward impeaching. It needs to be done more often. Mostly federal judges have been very abusive of office from time to time and gotten away with it. And of course, I wrote a book about that. 